Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're joining me this morning. We're going to be talking about a little bit of a controversial topic today, and I hope that you'll enjoy what we have to say. I hope that you won't be too offended, regardless of which side of the spectrum you might lie on this specific issue. So a message I received this week said, So in my geology class, we are learning about deep time and the ways to read formations in the earth. And I wanted to get your personal opinion on how geologic evidence and the creation story can coexist. Obviously a question that has probably crossed your mind. Ken Ham quotes an alarming statistic in his book, Already Gone, stating that the greatest area of disbelief in scripture is that of the age of the earth. He tells us that 80% of young people in America today doubt an early age to the universe and earth. So this show is dedicated to those 80% of today's youth. It's also dedicated to the people that are interested in reaching those 80% with the greatest news that this world has ever heard, namely the news of a relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross I wanted to start by stating my personal opinion as the person asked in their email. I am not a young earth or old earth creationist. I am neither. I am an earth creationist. Let's focus on the issue that's important, the fact that this earth and this universe exist and are here. How old they are is not the biggest question. The biggest question is the fact that we are here, and that's something that we can't lose whether it's from cosmology or philosophy, the cause of the universe, the first cause, as philosophers would state, is a battle that we cannot lose. We know that we're here. We know that this universe is not eternal. Science continually affirms the fact that this universe was created from nothing a finite time ago. I think it's wrong to fight a battle that is impossible to win at the expense of one that's impossible to lose. So that's my personal opinion. I do have some other thoughts on the issue, and I think they should all be taken in the context of that opinion. Focus on the big issue, the fact that the universe is here. That's the main thing. As a scientist, someone who studied chemistry, my degree in college was in chemistry, I am okay with a younger Earth. And the reason I say that I'm okay with a younger Earth from a science perspective is that we know that science is not always conclusive, and it is dynamic, and it is always learning and growing and changing. There are definitely some compelling reasons to believe in an older Earth. I'll share some of those today. I just wanted to state from the beginning that from a scientific perspective, I could see wiggle room on the age of the Earth, per se. From a Christian perspective, I am okay with an older Earth. I think, and I'll share this also today, that Scripture is not so clear about a very young earth. I think we all need to be humble about our own perspectives and realize that we need to focus on the issues that we can know for sure. The fact that this universe is here, the fact that human beings need a savior, namely Jesus Christ. We should realize that our finite minds will have plenty of areas of error when interpreting either data or scripture concerning a timeline. Oftentimes there's an emotional response from some Christians to the claim of an old earth because they believe that that claim is synonymous with an affirmation of evolution. That is not the case. I have debated on this era, I've debated on campus, and I'll continue to debate the fact that we were created by God specifically and that evolution is a lie. However, 
there has not been enough time, even according to an old timeline for the universe, for evolution to happen. And so I think as creationists, we need to realize that this is not necessarily something to fear right off the bat. So old earth does not equal evolution. Some would use a term like progressive creation, where God created more and more and more across eons of time over the seven days of creation. Now, I don't buy that completely. I'm not saying that I affirm that position. I'm just trying to make sure that everybody understands these different perspectives. Also, I think it's important to realize that nearly every reputable intelligent design and creation proponent today is okay with an old earth, and many of them actually are proponents of it. Here is a list of some Christian leaders today. Obviously, there are many more than these. These are just a few that are okay with an old earth. John Ankerberg, Chuck Colson, William Lane Craig, Norman Geisler, Billy Graham, Hank Hanegraaff, Jack Hayford, Greg Kokel, C.S. Lewis, J.P. Moreland, John Piper, Hugh Ross, Francis Schaeffer, Chuck Smith Jr., and Lee Strobel. Obviously, when you hear those names, and again, there are many more as well, you realize that this is becoming more mainstream to be okay with different perspectives on the age of the earth. All right, many more Jewish and Christian scholars across the millennia have also been okay with older dates. Some leaders today disparage anyone with a different literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. I do believe, and I'll state it many times today, that we should interpret those chapters literally. I also recognize that someone's interpretation might not be correct. Anyway, some leaders disparage anyone whose literal interpretation differs with their literal interpretation. To those people, I'd say, remember Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. Okay, going back to that statistic, Ken Ham again quotes the alarming statistic, and already gone, that 80% of today's youth have doubt about Scripture because they don't see how the geological evidence could allow for a young earth. Okay, Ken Ham states that, and then he readily acknowledges the fact that the gospel is the main issue of Scripture but then asks rhetorically, does the gospel rise or fall on the authority of Scripture? And does the authority of Scripture rise or fall on the days of creation? I would agree the answer is yes. I would also state that the authority of the gospel and Scripture does not depend on Ham's interpretation of the days of creation, nor anyone else's. See, it's not quite as clear, we'll come to find, as some people make it out to be. So let's talk about those days of creation. Literal interpretation of Scripture is necessary. There are obviously some instances, think about the book of Revelation, some other areas where a literal interpretation is not possible. We know that from the context. However, I think when we talk about creation, we should try to read this as literally as the text will allow us to read it. So, I know and believe, and I will fight to the death to defend the fact that scripture is inerrant, authoritative, complete, and perfect. Genesis 1 and 2 are as well. Human interpretations of those chapters aren't always infallible, authoritative, and inerrant. Sometimes they're incorrect. God's divine revelation in Scripture and his general revelation in nature should always line up. And when we see a discrepancy, the problem goes back to either bad theology or bad science, one or the other. Doctors Wolgamuth and Davidson describe this interesting paradox in last month's Christian Research Journal, volume 35, number 1, 2012, saying, the subject of this article 
and I'll get more to this article later, is limited to the evidence found in God's natural creation, but we readily acknowledge the preeminence of Scripture over science. Science, as a study of God's natural creativity, merely serves as a tool for choosing between scriptural interpretations when more than one is hermeneutically plausible. I would have to agree. Scripture has precedence over science always. And that's actually a good thing. Science is always catching up. And we've talked about that on other shows. We won't get more into it today. In this case, there are multiple and plausible different interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2 that are all within the context of a literal interpretation of those chapters. And I think that it's important to recognize that as we jump into this topic. Those with dogmatic interpretations of these issues on either end of the spectrum need a serious dose of humility and integrity. So let's look at the literal aspects of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 literally leave the age question ambiguous. Neither of those chapters nor any other chapter in Scripture tells us that the days of creation were 24-hour days. So as soon as people start saying they have to be 24-hour days, they are themselves not interpreting this passage literally. They would try to say that for different reasons they are. We'll get into some of those. If Scripture said literally 6,000 years, I would believe that no matter what, and I believe that good science would eventually catch up with that. What we should note, though, is that there is not a verse in Scripture that tells us the earth is 6,000 years old. None. We cannot add that to God's word. Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. When anyone tries to make Scripture say something it doesn't, for example, that the earth is only 6,000 years old, that figure is not in Scripture, they are adding to Scripture and will often be found off base. And then we get into these situations where tremendous doubt ensues because people are saying Scripture says X, Y, or Z when it does not necessarily say X, Y, or Z. They should humbly say X, Y, or Z are my interpretation of what Scripture says, and I could be wrong. So the history of the 6,000 figure. The 6,000 figure came from piecing together different genealogies going from Adam all the way to Jesus. Now, genealogies in the Old Testament and in the New are not a science, so to say, no pun intended. Christian scholars have historically differed in Adam's creation, giving dates as varied as 4,000 B.C., 6,000 years ago, and 12,000 B.C., 14,000 years ago, all using the same scripture and the same genealogies. So, again, the reason is that scripture does not tell us exactly what the dates are. Once again, we cannot add that to scripture. We also must realize that in many different instances in Scripture, when these genealogies are discussed, there are different things at play. For one, the word sons used often refers to people groups. In Genesis 10.1, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons were born to them after the flood. The word generations in Hebrew is pronounced toledoth, and it means descendants, results, proceedings, generations, genealogies, the count of men and their descendants, the genealogical lists to one's descendants, one's contemporaries, or the course of history, obviously, not necessarily just one specific generation. And the word sons in Hebrew is pronounced bain, and it means a son, a grandson, a child, or just a member of a group. Obviously, again, 
open to some interpretation. The generations or descendants listed are people groups. Example, Magog. There's a lot more that you could look into. Again, what I'm trying to say is it's not necessarily to be interpreted only as a father-son description of a genealogy. There are also genealogy gaps in both the Old and New Testament, and something that critics have brought up even when I have debated them, and there's a very simple answer. We know, for example, from the Old Testament, Ezra's genealogy is a good example, that depending on the book, there could be many generations omitted from the different genealogies. That wasn't because anyone was making a mistake, but rather because those scribes were intending to paint a picture of this person's ancestry, just like if you were trying to trace your ancestry back to the Mayflower, like my wife does. She might know a few key figures along the way, but she probably wouldn't be able to list every single parent and son or daughter relationship all the way back. So some of those generation gaps leave open the possibility of longer time frames. Many Christian scholars would readily admit that genealogy gaps are evident and that they're not a problem. Okay, in addition to this, there is a peculiar issue in Genesis 4, 14 through 15. Cain describes the people throughout the earth in verse 14, and God agrees with that analysis in verse 15. I have not yet heard a conclusive, theologically sound description of what's going on in that verse. It seems to imply that there were a lot more people on the earth at the time of Cain and also at the time of Adam. Remember, at this point, there seems to be only Adam, Eve, and Cain. Now, I believe firmly that Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. I believe Scripture says that clearly. Jesus said that clearly. I believe firmly for the same reason that there was a worldwide flood. At the same time, though, there are some verses like Genesis 4, 14 through 15 that have tremendous implications that we cannot just write off. Obviously, we can literally interpret Scripture here and humbly recognize that we don't fully understand what is going on. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're talking about the age of the earth and the universe. Scripture doesn't tell us the exact number of years between Adam and Abraham, and we shouldn't add to God's word making it say things it doesn't, getting ourselves into bigger problems than we need to. We also shouldn't do that at the expense of those who consider these dates to be an obstacle to faith in Christ. This understanding of Scripture resolves the issue of dynasties that existed prior to, during, and after the flood. Some people say the city of Ur of the Chaldees, Babylon, Egypt, the Chinese civilization, and the Harappan civilization in India, and others in India, all existed before the time of the flood, throughout the time of the flood, and after the time of the flood, without any description of a worldwide flood. Well, that would really be a problem if those dates were so exact like some people make them sound. When we realize that there are potential gaps and other issues like that, we realize that the exact date of the flood could have well been before those dynasties. And that is exactly what I believe makes a lot of sense, and it gets the Christian out of a lot of issues concerning that. So literally interpreting Genesis 1 is not likely to result in a very young earth perspective. Literally, day one describes the scientific data in ways modern scientists are blown away by. Agnostic Robert Jastrow described this reality in his book, God and the Astronomer, saying, Now we see the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. 
He continues, For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. A literal analysis of day one in Genesis 1 comes up with a very clear description of what modern cosmologists would describe as the Big Bang. Exact proof that God exists. Not, again, proof of evolution, but rather proof that God divinely created the universe. Again, literally, there was no sun and, accordingly, no solar day before day four. It's hard for people to say, I literally believe in 24-hour days before day four, when before day four there is no sun, which would be required for a literal 24-hour day. Uh, Literally, day six was very long. When we look at day six, some of the things that happen on day six, you can look at this in Genesis 1 and 2. Animals were created, then Adam was created, then Adam gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. That's a quote from Genesis 2.20. You should realize that over the history of the earth, there have been somewhere around 10 billion species. That's actually a projection or something that modern scientists would agree is a likely number. And if you named one of those animals or creatures every second, it would take over 300 years to name them all. Now, again, if we're literally saying day six was only 24 hours, all of that had to happen in 24 hours. Then Adam became lonely. Then he took a nap. Then God made Eve, etc. Day six was very long. And according to just general math, probably would have taken over 300 years. Literally, day seven still hasn't ended. Genesis 2-2 and Hebrews 4, 3-4 both seem to imply that there was no end to day seven and that we are still at this time in that period. Another thing that people describe is that in the Hebrew, the word for day used in Genesis 1 is yom, which literally means in many different areas of scripture, era or time frame. So it is a literal interpretation to say that those were time frames or eras. That's literally what the word means. For those that have a hard time realizing that an older earth doesn't allow for death, we notice that there are fossils in the fossil record before the fall. We need to interpret Romans 5.12 literally. Death came to all men through Adam's sin, not necessarily to everything else. A good resource on this would be Dembski's recently released book, The End of Christianity. He's not talking about the destruction of Christianity, but really the purpose of Christianity, salvation. And he has a really great answer to that issue in that book. Literal, yes. Hyper-literal, no. All scripture must be interpreted correctly using the minds and wisdom God has given us and in line with the rest of scripture. Again, how can a 24-hour day be supported before the existence of a sun on day four? The only way is hyper-literally. Hours don't happen without sunlight. There are examples of hyper-literal interpretations of Scripture which have gotten people into a lot of trouble. Snake handling, poison drinking, just a couple different examples from Mark 16, so to say. Now, what I think is important for the Christian today is not to take their interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 and make it more important than somebody coming to faith in Christ. That would be a hyper-literal interpretation which would be disastrous in that it is preventing somebody from coming to faith in Christ. So the universe and the earth. Uh, There is evidence for an old universe, the Big Bang. We, again, should not confuse that with evolution. There's tremendous evidence for the Big Bang. We can take a picture of it, literally, 97% back in time, so almost to the beginning of the Big Bang. The redshift, 
the cosmic microwave background radiation, abundance of primordial elements, and the math all require this. And again, for the Christian, it's evidence of divine creation. We should not try to fight that evidence. There's also astronomical evidence for an old universe. Light years, for example, they're difficult to circumvent. The observable universe has a diameter of 93 billion light years, and we see light from galaxies, stars, and planets that are many, many light years away from us, and it obviously took that light many, many light years to get here. There is an interesting book that tries to resolve this issue called Starlight and Time by Dr. Humphreys. I would definitely suggest you read it and check it out. Anyway, and now on to the evidence for an old Earth. There is geological evidence. There is radiometric dating, which a lot of times creationists will try to disparage, and I want to encourage you that there are assumptions made in radiometric dating, assumptions of what those isotope levels were in times past, etc. And so there is some wiggle room, but it's not a real good way to try and attack this. Fossils and sedimentary rocks cannot be dated using radiometric dating. And so scientists try to use bracketing and index fossils, which all form a type of circular reasoning. And we're finding that in some interesting ways. They've recently been finding actual dinosaur tissue that has not been fossilized. Hard to imagine if dinosaurs really existed only 70 million years ago. So I think it's hard to trust anyone that begins their science with the presupposition of naturalism. I think that's important. And at the same time, I think it's important to realize that there are evidences that are really hard to interpret in a young Earth kind of perspective. For example... Again, in this past month's Christian Research Journal, Volume 35, Drs. Wolgmuth and Davidson describe varves or sediment layers that deposit in couplets, one couplet per year, and they give the example of just one lake in Japan that has over 100,000 couplets. The obvious interpretation is that sediment has been depositing there for over 100,000 years. They also describe the reality that tree rings can date back over 12,000 years with the obvious interpretation that those trees have been there for over 12,000 years. They conclude their article in last month's issue of the Christian Research Journal stating many in the world marvel at the handiwork of God while denying the Creator. In response, some evangelicals demand that to acknowledge the Creator, we must deny His workmanship. Can there be a more ineffectual witness? If, after seeing the results of God's creation in figure 2, the description actually of the varves and tree rings, the church insists that the obvious meaning is in fact not true, we drive people away from faith in Christ on a misplaced assumption that belief in Christ represents the abandonment of reason. Christ himself is a sufficient stumbling block. We need not create any other. Interestingly, in that same journal, they are describing some of the most current evidence, which gives a young catastrophic explanation for the Grand Canyon. So there's a lot of science on both ends of the spectrum. Once again, I think we need to maintain humility and not drive people away from Christ or from faith in Scripture and its inerrancy because of our own unique interpretation of what that says. So the appearance of age. A lot of people would say that the earth was created with the appearance of age. I'd say that is very possible and that wouldn't be a deception on God's part. He can create it however he wants. It's our interpretation of that that might be a problem. But he wouldn't be a deceiver for that, as some atheists would say. But I want to make the note that if God created the earth with the appearance of age, science would find it to be old. And we should not disparage the scientist for describing the plain reality of how God created the universe to look. 
In Scripture, it says that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years in 2 Peter 3.8. A lot of people that hold to a very young earth would say that's out of context. I want to remind them it's not. Verse 5 discusses creation, and that verse specifically describes God's character, which we know does not change. But even if it were, Peter there is quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. So that is not the only place we see that verse. We see it also in the Old Testament. Interestingly, day in Psalm 90, verse 4, is again the Hebrew word yom, which describes eras, not necessarily just 24-hour time periods, the same word used in Genesis 1. The bottom line, God is outside of time. By definition, he must supersede his own creation, including time. Revelation 13 alludes to that, saying that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So time to God is different than time is to us. Now, my favorite interpretation of the evidence is that of Gerald Schroeder, whose works led Anthony Flew from atheism to theism, also some of his debates with Dr. Habermas, who's been on this show before. And Dr. Schroeder puts it this way. He's a Jewish astrophysicist. He describes how time in the universe is relative to the observer. We all know this from Einstein's theory of relativity. We know it from the twin paradox, for example. And you can Google the twin paradox to see what I mean. It's a very interesting phenomenon. But since time and the universe began, there has been a trillion-fold stretching. Okay? That's evidenced in the redshift and other areas. Now, that trillion-fold stretching goes kind of like this. Imagine if you drew two dots close to each other on a rubber band and then expanded them by a factor of 10. Well, they would look 10 times further apart than they were originally created. Now, what Schroeder tells us is that even if God created the universe in a literal seven-day period, in literally 24-hour periods, since that time, we know that there's been a trillion-fold expansion of the universe. And that trillion-fold expansion of the universe would literally leave us with somewhere near 16 billion years. Phenomenal how Schroeder kind of resolves this whole issue, saying, yes, God created the earth in literal 24-hour days, and yes, because of the expansion in the universe, again, which is described numerous times in Scripture, those time periods, looking back, would look to be 16 billion years old. So it kind of resolves both ends of the spectrum from an astrophysically very reasonable perspective, describing the reality that there could be a young Earth interpretation that completely coincides with old Earth views of science. There are enough barriers to faith already. There is no need to add a new one to that that the Bible doesn't articulate. We should not add to Scripture either way. We should not set divine revelation against general revelation. They should both coincide. We cannot create another barrier to Christ. We need to point people to Jesus and the answers that he offers. If you've struggled with doubt about this issue, about the age of the earth or the age of the universe, realize it's really a non-issue. Scripture has always proven trustworthy. I would invite you to check out more of our shows at godsolutionshow.com. We've talked about this many times. It's always been perfect, inerrant, and authoritative, and that includes Genesis 1 and 2. And even when science and history have seemed to contradict it, they have been found wrong. The issue of the age of the earth is not one that scripture is clear on, and you should not assume there is a contradiction with older dates. Even though some Christians might tell you there is, there really is none. Jesus alone has all the answers. Again, I want to make this clear. I am not a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist. I am an earth creationist. God made this earth 
and our interpretations of either scripture or science might be wrong, but he is the creator of earth, of the universe, and of all the life in it. And that is the main thing. We should not fight a battle that's impossible to win at the expense of one that's impossible to lose. I will fight to the death for the accuracy of a literal interpretation of scripture, and I believe that it is important that we remember Luke eleven forty six through 52. Jesus warned people who were experts in the scriptures but put huge burdens on people and wouldn't lift a finger to help them, hindering them from knowing God. We can't do that with this issue. We can't put this burden on people, preventing them from faith, not doing anything to help them come to Christ. Rather, we should realize that our interpretation of an early earth is not necessarily so stringent. The reality that scripture is inerrant and infallible is true. The reality that Jesus Christ came and died because he loved people so much that he paid for all their sins so that anyone that would trust in him could have eternal life. That's what we should focus on. I would invite you today, if you've never placed your trust in Christ, not to let this issue prevent you from faith, but to come to him as you are, ready to receive him as Savior and Lord. We need to focus on the big issue. The universe is here. God created it, and he created every one of us intentionally. How long ago? There are different interpretations. They're really not that big of an issue. I want to invite you to connect this week at the Student Life Center, room 119 at 730. We'll be there, and I hope you'll join us. Get all of our previous shows at godsolutionshow.com, and please let us know what you think. We appreciate your comments and questions. Sorry that this was a little bit rushed. We had a lot to get through today, but I'm thrilled you stayed along with us. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday.